Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke, Bike Radar's Deputy Editor, and today I'm joined by Tom Marvin, Senior Mountain Bike Technical Editor on Bike Radar and MBUK, and Simon Von Bromley, Bike Radar's Senior Technical Road Writer. Simon Bromley, first with you, how are you doing today? I'm all right. I've been a bit ill this week. I've, I've got a toddler and he keeps he keeps making me ill, which is really annoying. I berate him every time, every time he does it. He doesn't wow. understand a word I'm saying, but... <laughs> Start get, the podcast I think he gets with the vibe. Start a podcast with a bummer note. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> Tom Marvin, how are you? Jolly as ever? <laughs> oh, always, always checking at me. They're all good at this end, thanks, Jack. Um, also feeling a little ropey this morning when I woke up, but I think I'm all right. I've done a COVID test and I'm not COVID positive, so I just need to get on with it, I think. All right, well, I hope I brighten your spirits with today's podcast, which is going to be a quick you, fire Jack, round. <laughs> a quick fire round on the latest news in the world of cycling tech. Um, we've got everything from fat bikes, yes, they still exist, to weird carbon fixed gears that existed in the early 2000s, never to be seen again, all the way through to the latest mountain bikes and weird road tech. But we are going to kick things off with the news that Trek, despite <laughs> out of nowhere seemingly, has brought out a new fat bike. Now, fat bikes definitely had a moment in, say, like 2014 to 16, maybe, kind of really went quite mainstream. Lots of big brands brought them to market and then they mostly disappeared. Now, that's not totally true because the likes of Surly and uh, Salsa, lots of other small niche brands still produce fat bikes and have a place in the world for sure. But for Trek to still be investing in what is a very, very niche bit of the market is quite unusual. Tom Marvin, tell us what we need to know about the new Trek Farley and give us your thoughts on fat bikes as a whole. Well, um, so... 
the main news, obviously, is that there are now four versions of the Farley. Um, it's the Farley 5 or the aluminium ones that really have been updated as the carbon ones stay the same. So uh, the alloy frames, they come with uh, yeah, a, a rebuilt frame with slightly tweaked geometry. Um, you've got a slightly slacker head angle. You've got slightly shorter chain stays. Um, and they also come uh, with a 42mm offset carbon fork. Um, and they all come fitted out with Katie Surprise fat bikes kind of suit the kind of rider maybe who's going to go for some long distance trundles um, <laughs> over rugged <laughs> terrain I could sorry you can't see but I could see the sort of <laughs> doubt in Tom's face as he's saying all this a man who doesn't like bags being strapped to bikes let alone niche bikes so this is really <laughs> amusing me <laughs> um, they're for the adventure cyclist right so it does kind of make sense um, that the bikes can be kitted out in every single bag imaginable possible for your little five or ten mile trundle around um <laughs> so, yeah. uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm jesting. Um, they, they're sort of uh, 4.5 inch tyres. Um, they pricing, it's kind of keen. You know, the, the aluminium frame sets uh, start at about £1,400 or $1,500. Um, but, you know, the, there is obviously still a market out there for fat bikes. There are plenty of people who still get their kicks with them. Um, and there is a time and a place for a fat bike. Um, a, fr a good friend of ours, well, a good friend of mine and, and someone you know, Jack, um, I, I don't know if he's your friend or not. Uh, I'd say so. We, we message each other on Instagram. Oh, great. You're, you're Cool. Well, um, our friend Hugh Oliver has just uh, completed the ID to Rod 350. I believe he came third. Which is he's a monster. He he previously won the Highland Trail 550 big bike packing race in Scotland. Pro, a genuine athlete. Yeah, he won GB Giro last year, which is Lantern yes, to John O'Groats yeah. off road. Uh, the man is a an endurance cycling legend in the UK, or should be anyway. Uh, so you know, and you've got to do that sort of thing on fat bikes. So there there is a market out there in the UK. I would argue that it's quite a limited market. There's not that many times and that many places where I feel a fat bike really makes sense. But there are a lot of people out there who love riding um, on big floaty soft tires. So to be fair, maybe Trek are sort of, maybe maybe there's space for one big brand to have a fat mm. bike in the market. Probably quite a canny move, to be honest. Um, before we come to you, Simon, I'm dying to hear what you think of fat bikes. Am I right in saying, Tom, that some years ago you did a fat bike race, maybe in Finland, or am I making this up? No, you are correct. I did the Rovaniemi 350. 350? 150? Rovaniemi something like that. Go for the bigger number. It sounds more impressive. No, no, it's Rovaniemi 150. 150. Oh, my. I should remember. I did it. Maybe I've just blotted it out of my memory. It was 150 km fat bike race in Lapland in February. It was unsurprisingly cold. Um, but to be honest, as an experience, it was pretty cool, um, and I did have to do it on a fat bike. I had a, low, I had a proper Gucci fat bike, carbon this, carbon that. Um, it was, it was an experience. Cool, Simon. You know, you kind of started the the year saying that you were maybe kind of tickle mountain bikes a little bit this year. Would the fat bike be fitting a, a slot in your heart, or are you more of a hardtail kind of guy? I mean, yeah, like I haven't ridden one, so I'm kind of not speaking from experience, but like I just think they don't seem particularly useful for someone who lives in Bristol. I mean, like, you know, maybe if you if you lived in, in America or Antarctica, you know, somewhere where there's a lot of snow, it might be useful. But I just like, I don't know, they just they just seem a bit, a bit a way, like way too niche, right? But like, 
you know, like like Tom said, that you know, for certain people they make sense, and you, you could you could argue that super fast time trial bikes are also a little bit too niche for most people. It doesn't mean they aren't the right bike for some people. What balanced opinions? That's what people didn't come to the podcast. That's not what people Jack, want to listen to the podcast. Jack, you, struck, want to you struck me as a person, kind of Jack. You might enjoy a fat bike. Maybe in a previous <laughs> life, a you might enjoy a Jack, Jack would only ride a tandem fat bike. A tandem fat bike. <laughs> and a fixed gear one at that. A tandem no. fixed gear fat bike. With bags hanging like, off everything. <laughs> I, I used to ride a lot on a, um, a rigid Niner with like, what, 2.4 inch tires kind of thing back in the day. And that really, it was like basically a flat bar gravel bike back in the day. And I loved that. And I appreciate the simplicity. Were you ahead of the curve, Jack? I was ahead of the curve. But I, I appreciate the simplicity that a fat bike offers. But for me, I just the sort of passive suspension that's quite out of control and a bit bouncy of a fat bike, not for me. Not for the shreddy riding mm. I do, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the fat bike lives, the new Trek Farley. There's full details of that on bikeradar.com. Of course, in the podcast description, you can head to the links to read more about that. Now, last week... As of the time we were recording this, Strata Bianchi took place for 2023 and we had the big dog himself, George Scott, out there riding the event for an upcoming feature. It'll be in Not the pro Russell. race, we should say. Well, not the pro race, but <laughs> the sportive. It'll be in a feature in the cycling bus and bike radar soon. But while he was there, he hoovered up all the most interesting tech he could find in the pits. Simon, you had a close look at this article. Tell us what the kind of key takeaways from Strata Bianchi Tech for 2023 were. So I think, the, you know, the kind of obvious ones are a kind of continuation of the, the wider trends we're seeing across the sport. And it's kind of the things you would expect, right? Like lots of aero, aero kit, aero wheels, tubeless tires. I think, you know, Greg, George spotted Greg Van Avermaet, who's a kind of you know, slightly older classics rider still running tubulars. But I think you know, almost every team and every rider was running tubeless tires in a kind of you know, 28 to 30 millimeter size. So I, you know, I, is that I don't really even know if that's news anymore. I think that's just kind of like what we expect these days. Like if, if anything, it's more surprising that anyone was still running tubulars, really. Um, it's amazing one, that any of the mechanics can be bothered gluing them. You can imagine when <laughs> well, old man Van Avermaet comes down to the pit, he goes, my tubulars, please. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if tubular setups any easier. I mean, like if, if, if they're all setting up clinches, I think it would be fine. But, you know, Tom Marvin's got a few opinions on, on, <laughs> on, on tubular setup. And certainly when we visited uh, the tour line, Last year, you know, there were a, f a few mechanics who were kind of bemoaning the idea of having to, you know, constantly keep an eye on mm. sealant, make sure it's topped up. And, you know, running the idea of running tubeless liners, for example, you know, they absorb some of the sealant. So you have to run a bit more and then you have to keep an eye on it. And then, like, you know, if you want to if you want to change a tire, it can be a massive faff. And so, yeah, like, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's much less faff, but I think the performance benefits are, are so clear to most teams that, you know, it's it's worth it. Um, one one interesting thing that George spotted was that uh, Peter Sagan, um, three time world champion, was running a GRX Di2 rear derailleur, which was quite interesting. Um, his Total Energies team is still on eleven speed uh, Shimano Durace. They haven't moved over to twelve speed yet, and I don't know if that's just because they're not officially sponsored by Shimano and, and you know buy their parts and have decided that you know eleven speed Durace is perfectly fine could uh, well you know, be. Yeah. which could well be but yeah the grx rear derailleur has a, a clutch and so presumably that would have helped with you know just kind of Im improving chain retention offering a little bit less noise be a bit better over the kind of off-road sections you know i mean ultimately unfortunately sagan 
didn't really play a part in the front of the race this with this weekend. He just he's you know he hasn't seemed to have recaptured his best form yet. A bit of a shame considering it's his last season, but hopefully he might improve as we go further into the road season. I think the tubeless takeover, while not a talking point in that, like, oh yeah, they're all in tubeless. Like that in itself just shows that apart from a very few holdouts, it clearly will be dominant this year, which is something we've predicted on and off for a couple of years now. And now it has slowly regained. I would be curious to know, like, you know, the, most of these bike, um, most of these teams rather have tire sponsors and the majority of them will be wishing to push tubeless tech. So how much of it is sort of choice versus, you know, the kind of wills and wishes of the sponsors on, I wouldn't, I don't know, essentially. Yeah, I think my kind of, like, if I had to guess, I would say, like, it, it it is a bit of both. And I think we've, you know, I think if you gave a lot of pros a choice, they might still be running rim brake bikes, for example, just because <laughs> they, they want a lighter bike. Um, uh, yeah, or, or they want the quick tire chain, a wheel change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I really enjoy it. Yeah, so, so it's kind of, it's you know, it's kind of tricky. Like, we, riders you know get less choice these days in in a lot of ways but but the choices that they want are not always necessarily the kind of you know most optimized fastest choices and i know that a lot of teams these days employ you know, performance coaches and and you know people whose jobs it is to you know to make sure the riders are all on the fastest kit but it is kind of difficult like you know yeah that like those guys can tell those riders you should be riding this this and this because it's faster but obviously if the rider doesn't really believe in it it, it you know that kind of performance mm. gain gets a bit lost in the kind of lack of a placebo effect so there's a bit of buy-in as well and, and i think you know as other successful riders all move to you know tubeless or you know, narrow bars or you know aero wheels and aero aero frames for example then all of a sudden the rest of the peloton probably looks at that and you know like there was a time for example when no one would run carbon wheels at roubaix because you just had to run you know, cool Ambrosio. Box set, yeah. yeah, exactly. They look box cool, set. Though. Box set. Yeah, they did look really cool. And they were super stiff and probably like, you know, the worst wheels you could run for that race. But they were just strong. But then obviously once Cancellara won on Zip 303s, all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, you know, we can actually, yeah, we should be running aero wheels. So I think it's just kind of one of those things. Like, Tom, there, there's an of, element of both. A topic we've sort of revisited a few times, but from your perspective... As a mountain biker, I know, I know you. I know you like a little bit of road riding too. I don't want to dismiss your your previous life, but you know the mountain biking world is generally far less conservative when it comes to tech innovations and like the pits. For example, at the downhill World Cups, are always a real fruitful endeavor. There's always really interesting, weird stuff being trialed, and it's kind of like the norm, not the exception. From your perspective, looking at something like Strada Bianchi, or rather looking at the um, the holdouts like the few guys that are on tubular tires. What do you think as a mountain biker to that? Uh, I mean, in some ways, I respect their doggedness in sort of committing to the uh, the traditions that still exist in road cycling. But there's a large part of me that sort of really thinks, oh, just get on with get on with it. Like, there's this new tech that's come along that does make genuine improvements and, and will, you know, like, I, I get there's, like, psychology goes on a lot of things, you know, like, there's a lot of sort of chatting mountain biking about, you know, does weight matter or does X, Y, Z matter, all this sort of stuff. And I think there is a, there's a psychological element that is forgotten when we have these sort of real techie chats because, actually, you need to be comfortable on the on the kit that you're riding. And so maybe maybe that's why sort of some traditional sort of thoughts pervade still in, in road cycling. But for the most part, 
I'm glad those arguments of like disc brakes and, and all this sort of jazz are disappearing in road cycling. And I'd be interested to see which ones come around in the future, you know, one by, maybe that'll make a return. Um, there's plenty of interesting stuff that could happen in road cycling if people just get on with it, I reckon. Well, on that kind of note, something we always are on the hunt for, Simon Bromley, I've said it many times, quite genuinely spends his lunchtimes looking at Getty images, trying to find weird tech that teams are using. Um, and there's been there's not been quite a, as fruitful a crop at the start of this year, but they have seen the odd sort of weird thing out there. My favourite so far probably being um, Camping Arts running the classified hub and a big giant one-by chain ring. We've also seen this quite odd-looking Pock Tempor-inspired sweet protection helmet, which I'll ask you about in a second, Simon. These sort of, like, um, tech that falls outside of the bell curve and these individual, very individualistic riders like, say, Taco Van Dorn, you know, are, are they a distraction or are they something we should be looking at towards, the, like, for the future of road cycling tech? I think, you know, I think these people, like, who kind of push the boundaries, whether it be, yeah, like, Taco Vanderhorn and you know, people like Dan, rider. yeah, people like Dan Bigham recently. But you know, even back in the day, you know, had a famous Scotsman by the name of Graham O'Brien, who you know really famously pushed the boundaries and did really crazy things. And you know, obviously, kind of like UCI didn't really like it because some of the stuff he did looked terrible. But he certainly influenced the sport. And the, you know, like even Francesco Moser adopted the O'Brien position for some of his right, some of his his riding. I, th I think you know where. Yeah, Campen Arts is going, you know, with a classified hub and a big 62th ring for these for these climbs. It's not that everyone's going to suddenly switch from 53 or 54 to 62th rings, but you certainly see it across the sport that, you know, everyone kind of looked at this and, you know, just Remco started turning in his brake hoods and now all of a sudden everyone is, you know, thinking about turning in their brake hoods and running narrower bars and everyone's running slightly bigger chain rings, you know, like when SRAM moved to its axis group sets, for example, it brought out its whole kind of new gearing range and all the pros went, well, no, we want big chain rings. So, <laughs> so they had to make them. And, and so like, yeah, there are, tr there are definitely trendsetters within the Peloton, you know, like, because, you know, like Dan Bigham's a great example. He's, he, I'm sure he would admit he is not the most powerful rider in the world, for example. Yet he was still able to beat Bradley Wiggins' hour record and take the, you know, the overall UCI hour record off current World Tour pro Victor Campanarts. Now, you know, like, he is a really smart guy and he is, a, he is an incredibly good athlete. You know, he is a kind of world champion on the track. But I'm sure, you know, he's he's kind of like, you know, brain as much as brawn, right? And I'm sure like other people who, you know, maybe think, well, I've got a better FTP than Dan Bigham. How come I don't ride as fast as he does? You know, if they're smart, they should be looking at that and thinking, well, what can I do? Why? What are the differences? Probably because he didn't, he probably took Bradley Wiggins's record because he didn't uh, have <laughs> laces on his shoes. That's my takeaway from all of that. <laughs> I well, I think that was the era when the UCI was, was, wasn't was allowing people to, to wear overshoes on the track. Oh, right. So Wiggins had to wear aero socks and a lace up shoe was probably one of the more aero options compared to something with boa dials. All right, Simon. <laughs> it's just a joke. Thanks. Never mind. Well, it, it doesn't work because it isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> looking at elsewhere, kind of strange tech, you covered this new sweet protection helmet, which like on the face of it, it's a pretty mad looking thing. However, it, you know, it's a design that we can say quite confidently has been inspired by the success of the Pock Tempor. Tell us what this new helmet is and try and describe what it looks like politely. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So this is the Sweet Protection, that's the brand, and it's the Redeemer 2VI MIPS. Now, as you say, like, it appears that it takes quite heavy inspiration from the POC Temple. Now, of course, I did put that question to Sweet Protection and they just kind of didn't answer it and said, you know, we just looked at what is the best helmet design and, you know, completely independently came to this design, which may well be true, to be fair. Um, but it does have that kind of similar shape where as you, kind of, rather than having, you know, most, most kind of time trial helmets are a traditional kind of teardrop shape in some form, you know, whether it's kind of a really long one or just a kind of short bobtail one, like the kind of famous cask Bambino that Team Sky kind of made famous back in the day. Um, but instead of that, this one goes back from a kind of round front and then flares out towards the shoulders. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be mean, but like, you know, people make the kind of, it looks like a Darth Vader helmet. It looks like a Stormtrooper helmet, right? Now, the idea is that these kind of flares basically direct the airflow around the shoulders um, and sweet protection enlisted the help of a guy called Kyle Forster, who is an aerodynamics expert and formerly worked, previously worked at a Mercedes AMG, AMG Patronus F1 team. He also runs a YouTube channel on Formula One aerodynamics. And so when he popped up in the presentation, I was like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's got it's got some interesting features. It's kind of got like, you know, multi-layer kind of shells to, you know, have kind of the, the right amount of, you know, protection for your head, but also not be too thick so that it has a low stack height. And, you know, that basically means it's not, it's not a big helmet. So the idea is that it doesn't kind of have a big frontal area. It doesn't have any vents, but it does have a kind of hole on the front with two channels. And the idea is that air gets kind of pushed into those two channels and then flows through internal channels in the helmet. And it's kind of accelerated by narrowing of these channels. And then that air leaves the helmet at your shoulders at a faster speed than the kind of airflow from the outside. And somehow this reduces your drag. Now it's got like, you know, it's, it's all little tricks Sounds like that. Sounds complicated. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's to deal with that, you know, on the POC Tempore, it has those two vents at the front. And, and a lot of time trial helmets have vents in that position because that kind of central area of the helmet can typically be an area where the airflow just kind of hits it and doesn't really have anywhere to go. So it can be a, a kind of buildup of, of pressure 
which can then cause a little bit bit of drag. So you kind of need, I think, to have some sort of vent or something there to kind of stop that pressure building up. So, but they've used that in this case to, you know, as a little a nifty trick the guy called it. Now, go on, Jack. I was going to say, who will be riding with this helmet this year? So that'll be Team Uno X, and from the autumn we'll all be able to buy one. <laughs> I can't wait to see you in one in your local time trial. Now, Tom, the, the sort of shape of this helmet, we always look back to the Park Tempor and how it was used on the track, but it kind of occurred to me a while ago that we've never really talked about, you know, um, like Eric Barone, for example, the downhill sort of speed record guy who would kind of ride off of Mont Blanc on a, you know, crazy downhill bike, but also the kind of world of downhill skiing. Like, this is perhaps an example if you want to really kind of reach quite far wow. of maybe mountain bike area. No, no, I'm going to claim it. As a mountain biker, I'm going to claim that, uh, that's too much that of a reach. we've been doing this for years. It's just that the UCI throttles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The UCI throttles our aerodynamics. Oh, cool one in that's, for you uh, then, Tom. That's the problem on down in downhill <laughs> now. Cool one in for Tom's trail riding. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I think there's a lot that, perhaps we have overlooked from the world of like downhill skiing or as in uh, ski speed records. Like they do all sorts of wild stuff like aero fairings built into the backs of legs. Now you're not, you're not going to see that in cycling. That would all be kind of UCI illegal. And I would probably argue all the better for it really. But in terms of um, the sort of like rubbery, strange suits they use and everything, I, I reckon there's probably stuff to be learned there. What do you think, Simon? Well, funnily enough, actually, rubberized suits were a thing around the 2008 Beijing Olympics um, and were a kind of key reason why GB won so many medals at that Olympics, you know, apparently. Um, but then the UCI banned them because they said they were too fast. So, Famously, um, Scottish cyclist Ben Cathro, of course, uh, used a rubbery skin suit um, at the Fort Wayne Downhill World Cup. Um, and he said that, he he practiced in his normal kit and then Chris Porter of Geometron was running the team, I think. And he was like, no, you're going to wear the kit, you're going to wear the kit. And he went into the first corner, missed his braking mark because he was going that much faster. <laughs> he basically mm. messed up the corner because it made such a difference. Wow. How do you determine... I'm, and he looked I, a bit. <laughs> I, well, I, for me, my question to the UCI would be, how do you determine when something is too rubbery, too kinky? So, so basically, um, it has to have an open weave that, that's it. So the fabric has to have an open weave. Now, the rubberized skin suits were basically made so that air couldn't go through them. So that, okay. you know what I mean? Like, it's, it how wasn't... Do you, how do you determine that? Do you know what I mean? Like, this I don't know. Like... I mean, like, the UCI made a, a a tool, a bespoke tool for measuring sock length, remember? So maybe they have... Just bring it bring it up to your mouth and blow, and if it makes a fart, you know, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not open weave. <laughs> I don't know. I just, ugh, whatever. I'm so glad I'm not a commissioner. I mean, you know, like the thing is, like if you check the UCI rule books, there's a thing in it and this, right? Like there, there's a, there are pictures of like someone wearing one of those like gloves with closed off fingers, for example, and there's like, those are not allowed. Okay. You know, okay. so like the UCI, there, there will be something in there that says like it has to have an open weave structure and it'll be you know, like they and they'll have some way. I think, you know, even if the thing is, even if they don't have a test, so much of this stuff is just kind of subject to, you know, the commissaire at the side of the track being like, nah, I don't like it. Mm. You know, what what a laugh. Oh, well, um, Tom, we're going to come back to you now quickly for a quick fire round of some of the latest mountain bikes that have come to market. I dare say the last few weeks have been sort of uncharacteristically busy for February, March. I just, I've barely been able to keep up with the amount of new product. But even, in the, you know, on the mountain bike side of thing, especially in the kind of mid to low end, we've seen a lot. So, after you. Well, so 
But I'll start with a, a little UK specific one, I guess, uh, and that is the new Caliber Rake. Um, so Caliber is the sort of the brand that comes out of Go Outdoors, which is like a big outdoor superstore, um, very good value stuff. They were uh, responsible for the for a number of like the Caliber Bosnet, for example, which is like the OG budget full suspension bike that was actually really, really, really good. Um, and they have uh, just launched uh, the Rake's 550 pounds. The geometry looks rad, like it's long, it's slack, it's low. Um, their marketing material's got people doing massive jumps. Um, so that looks really cool. Um, it's got, uh, yeah, good kit, good shape, and it's 550 quid um, if you've got that little discount card that you can get from Go Outdoors. So I reckon that bike is gonna fly off the shelves real quick. Um, the other bike that was launched that I thought was kind of interesting um, was the new Focus Raven. So uh, the Raven was Focus's like uh, arse up, head down, steep XC <laughs> race bike. Uh, and I was like, oh, there's a new Raven because I'm actually going to be doing a group test for Bike Red on MBUK of very racy hardtails. And I was like, oh, great, I'll get the new Raven. And then it turns out it's basically a downcountry bike now. Uh, so 120 mil travel. Uh, on the front, which is kind of like the new thing in XC anyway, but it is quite slack and they seem to be focusing it at the and the bike packing market. Now there's a picture on um, bikeradar.com that we used showing uh, its bike packing potential uh, and it's it's a Raven with a handlebar bag and a frame bag and it basically looks like someone's gone along to a building site and found some rubble bags uh, and uh, made some <laughs> it does it really does yeah. I hadn't seen that it's not it must it's, be made of recycle it must be recycled it must be stuff. Um, it's quite it, weird that's great it's great it's just not a great look uh, but um, so it actually looks pretty cool that bike and I'd actually really like to ride it um, comes with a dropper comes with 120 more forks uh, it's got dropped um, seat stays to give that compliance a little bit reminiscent of the new Cannondale Scalper Hardtail as well, um, which I am going to be testing. <clears throat> so it looks kind of cool, looks kind of I... interesting, but maybe not like a hardcore race bike anymore. I, I was thinking, one thing I was going to say about Focus, I think their sort of design language, to use a very hot word at the minute, has really improved <laughs> in mm. recent years. Like that is a, that's a cool looking bike. And like the Focus it's quite, app. It's quite BMC, isn't it? Especially yeah, at the yeah. stem. That's the, yeah. Like it's just got a re nice shapes. It's quite unified within like the wider brand. It kind of makes me think a bit like that Focus Atlas I tested mm. a couple of years ago. Like they've, they've really tightened up, I think, how their bikes look and they feel very modern, cool paint. I think they have. Nice looking bike. Yeah. That, um, as you say, Simon, the, the BMC two-stroke, another similar-looking bike, and maybe, maybe I should do a test of those instead of my um, proper racy bikes. But anyway, um, I have it's got integrated cables, Tom. How do you feel about that? Oh, right. Well, so this this is a whole other this is a whole other podcast, Simon. Now, traditionally, <laughs> I would be very, 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 very upset about this because I'm very bad at working on bikes, and it's one of my least favorite things is to spend time in the garage trying to fix these things. Um, but I recently rerouted um, brake and gear cables through the back of my Merida. Uh, 140 and it has through the headset um cable ring and you know what it, it took a little while but it wasn't difficult uh, and it's made me reframe my thoughts on internal cable routing a little bit um but it's cool but oh it's also a hardtail that has one of those little down tube storage boxes which you don't really see many mm. of um so it's interesting that's something i asked what do people put in there um, hot dogs burritos jackets all right okay <laughs> i i i rode the specialized um Stump Jumper, the like previous generation one when that launched, and a r real good like three four days of riding. I put a sandwich in there. 
I put a jacket in there. It was great. And also the sort of little tool pouch that was in there, as someone who's chronically forgetful, it was terrific having it all sort of stuffed away down there. I, I, I'm, I'm all for it because there's very little disadvantage to it. I think the the um, sort of chambers themselves can be quite rough. Mm. That'd be my only sort of like feedback. And I've had a few problems with like the special diverge. Do you like it be velvet lined, perhaps? Velvet lined, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the special diverge had two long bolts on the um, bottle cage. Oh, are you just mentioning this because you're going to say, oh, but they fixed no, it after no, reading I'm my review? Not. Well, because the, the new one was just as bad. It wasn't just as bad, it was almost as bad. Um, but it would catch the jacket or whatever as you took anything out. I, I, I'm all for it. Okay. I, I think there's no disadvantage. Um, I'm more for it than I am putting a bag on your top tube or on your handlebars. Um, I think it looks, I, I'm more okay. for like a clean aesthetic. Um, I mean, that's, I, I run a top tube bag on my gravel bike because sometimes you just need to carry stuff. But um, I'm, it's, it's gravel. gravel, man. You've got your 10,000 exactly. gels. Yeah. <laughs> but all sticking out like a triathlete. You just sellotape them on the top tube so you can have them very, Whip very them quickly. Whip them off as I uh, ground along some uh, gravel tracks. And throw it on the floor. <laughs> discard the wrapper on the floor. No, I'm, no, I, I, I don't mind a little down tube storage box. I don't know if I'd ever really use them, but maybe to say it's good for those things where little and often, sorry, no, little and inoften use. Um, I'd, I, just, I don't know if I'd put a sandwich in there because I forget it. <laughs> I don't think I, in I, often is I a word. See, I can see the idea of storing yeah. a toolkit in there, to be fair. I think that would be what I would do because I do use a saddlebag, obviously, and, and like, I suppose if I had a frame storage port, I would just shove it in there. Right, final new mountain bike, Tom. One you were slightly less enamoured by, the new Audi e-bike, which if you look quite closely, might just be a rebranded Fantic. It does look like it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, Audi. Um, you know, like a lot of car brands, you know, they're making a lot of noise about new electric cars. I think they're going to be quitting making, um, you know, regular petrol and diesel cars very soon in the next couple of years. Um, and I think they, they're trying to give the impression of creating a more holistic approach to electric transport. Um, and they've released, um, yeah, it's basically a rebranded Fantic, isn't it? Um, and they've slapped their Qtron branding on it. Um, inspired by their 2022 Dakar willing, uh, winning Qtron car thing that drove across the deserts really fast and did look quite cool. Um, but yeah, so they, they've made a bike. There will probably be in a lot of um, Audi car dealerships on a bike rack on top of the car, destroying any um, aero efficiency that their electric cars may have and reducing your range significantly. But it's a thing. Uh, it looks fairly expensive they've plugged on a load of olins uh so like real fancy kit on there it's just just not much of a looker i just for me with car brands like it, it feels oh, i don't know like no one's nailed it really like no one's nailed it as as like producing bikes i feel like it will come like car brands can't ignore or car manufacturers i should say can't ignore that cars are going to be banned from city centres eventually. That's that's the kind of key thing there. And it would make sense for them to invest all this wonderful manufacturing and engineering expertise they have into bikes. Of course, they're not directly applicable, and we've seen that with some Porsche, BMW, they've bikes all done it. from car brands in the past. But they always... Yeah, they always... But for the most part, they tend to be these sort of just rebranding exercises. And it's kind of disappointing, to be honest. I'd rather see someone really, really go out there and we talked about it in a previous podcast, Simon, but like uh, we 
to kind of get to the mass market, I personally believe a car brand coming in with its huge distributor model, all these garages absolutely everywhere, they have the presence already to make owning a bike more like a car. Now that, for the people listening to this podcast and us, like that's just not how we would own a bike. It's not what we're interested in. But most people don't really care about things like um, how easy it is to service a bike. They just want a bike that will work. And I think for a car brand to come in, invest in developing something genuinely good and make use of what they already have in terms of physical presence in the, the world would probably be a, a good thing. What I do like from the car world is, you know, like so far no one's made a decent, none of the car brands really have made like a decent um, bike. But you are seeing car brands accepting that cycling is an, is, a, is an important aspect. So, you know, Skoda, for example, have done, you know, whether it's concepts or they, they do little bits to make living with a bike a little bit easier in some of their bigger cars. Um, I think it was at this Vauxhall Corsa had like, you could get an integrated bike rack sort of like out of the bumper. So, you know, I, I like it when car brands accept that cycling is important and they, they encourage their drivers to, you know, or they, they offer products to make life a little bit easier for cyclists. Because all that does is increase like cycling's presence in the mainstream. Because most people, you know, a lot of people really don't know that much about it. But, you know, if the car brand's like, hey, look, you can do this with your car, you know, you can get a bike and it really is, it's like there's a rack integrated. That's only going to encourage people who maybe wouldn't be that interested in cycling to maybe think about it. What do you think, Simon? Are you uh, sympathetic with that feeling or are you slightly more sceptical? I just, I just don't really like it. You know, I, just, I think this idea of like, you know, I think when car manufacturers, you know, build the sports utility vehicles, it's kind of like, hey, isn't like, you know, driving fast is really, really fun. And, you know, I'm going to get this car with a massive, powerful engine and it's huge. And this just kind of feels like the bike version of that, like eight and a half thousand pounds. And it's just kind of like, it's like, it looks like one of those kind of homemade e-bikes you see like delivery drivers running around on. And I, and I just think like, this isn't what we need for kind of like utility, you know, utility cycling. And they can say like, oh, well, you know, it's a sports bike and it's not intended for kind of, you know, urban riding and stuff like that. But then I just don't think, you know, what what are, the, what are Audi doing trying to get into that space? If so, I, you know, they, they're kind of, you know, Audi makes cars for, you know, transport and everyday use. So I don't really see, I, I don't know. I just, I just don't like it. I, I think like... I don't know. I think car manufacturers have done enough damage and they they should just kind of like go away. <laughs> and, you know, this is someone who like owns a car, you know, and I, I, I have a, a secondhand SUV, so maybe that's a bit hypocritical, but I didn't buy it, you know, because I wanted that kind of car. It was just, it was kind of just a hand-me-down because it come to the end of its useful life with my parents and I, and I just needed Simon. a kind of slightly Simon, bigger car. Why are the read listeners going to think a hand-me-down SUV? Well, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, would you, like selling a car these days is, is like, nah, you, no can get, you can get decent money for it, but, you know, we, need, we had a, a terrible old car. We just needed a slightly bigger one. It, it, it wouldn't be the type of car I would choose if I was, you know, going out <laughs> to buy one, but... um. But yeah, well, we know I, I that you know. love hanging outside of primary schools, revving the engine, parking on the other <laughs> side. Yeah, but that's that's the now. thing, you know. Like it, this, this just feels like a kind of SUV bike, and like SUVs are kind of all that's wrong <laughs> with the modern world. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's not really my cup of tea. Maybe it's maybe it's a fun bike if you were riding in Dakar, but <laughs> for the kind of streets of Bristol, it, it just looks a bit silly. From one wildly impractical bike to another, we now turn to Eric Bjorling, 
who is Trek's head of road marketing. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an opinion piece on the Trek District Carbon, which was an utterly weird, fixed gear, belt driven bike that absolutely nobody needed. Ludicrously expensive, wildly niche. Return to my chat with Eric now. I'm now joined by Eric Bjorling, who is Trek's director of brand marketing and PR. Now, Eric, you were involved with the District Carbon's development, or certainly part of that team, way back in the day. But first off, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do at Trek today, and your involvement with that project way back when. Sure. I uh, have this um, kind of overly lofty title of, of Director of Brand, and really what it, it, it means is I get to uh, guide the efforts of a really talented group of creatives. Um, so that covers everything from photo studio and video studio. Uh, all of our, a lot of our web content, our creative designers uh, and graphics, and our copywriting team, as well as our, our uh, communications department as well. So it's a little bit of a lot of, it's a lot of different things, but I kind of like to think that we sort of um, run the little miniature creative agency with, and have just one really uh, demanding and consistent client. You sound like a very, very busy man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does keep me up. It does keep me up and busy. So back when, when you worked on the Trek District, I mean, first off, just tell us what that bike was for the people who aren't familiar with it. Sure. You know, back in 2009, I, I was uh, still making my way uh, at the company. I started here in 2005, so this will be my 18th year. Uh, we're going into my 18th anniversary here, which I'm very excited about. But um, at that time, I was the uh, marketing guy for the, the pavement uh, line. So really like, non-competitive. It was... Uh, cruisers and kids bikes and urban bikes and urban bikes were having this like moment in in, in our culture and then just like relevance. It was really incredible to see. Um, people were kind of returning to the bike paths and cities were starting to, at least here, especially in the US, it's, it's a very different story uh, abroad, but cities in the US were really starting to wake up to the importance of, of cycling infrastructure. And it, cycling kind of became fashionable again. Um, and so we were doing a lot of different experimentation and a lot of different kinds of bikes than, than Trek had ever done before. But it was this really great period where you had a, an incredibly creative team of individuals that was working on these bikes, um, really plugged into the culture and really plugged into what was happening in, in New York and in LA and, and, and going um, doing all these research trips. And we brought back a lot of this stuff into the team. And the District Carbon specifically came out of a lot of different conversations that just started with like, what if? Hey, like, what if we took this frame? Or what if we tried this? Or what if we took some of our favorite elements from other places and just kind of mashed them together and did something really, really different? Um, but then, you know, you go with, you have those what if moments. And then you're like, well, what if, yeah, but what if the bike actually costs like, you know, $3,000, $5,000 for a single speed? What if, what, if, what if that happens? And it's like, well, that actually did happen. <laughs> Um, so, you know, for those that don't know, the uh, District Carbon was, if I'm right in saying, based on the Madone of that time. But among many of its other quirks, and I do outline these in the article I wrote for Bike Radar, it was, as you say, a belt-driven single speed. Now, that is a pretty pretty wacky combination between the two. You know, I, I, it's a, a niche bike within a, a niche sort of segment. My big question for you is why a belt drive? You know, given that single speeds are generally speaking used as a chain, why, what kind of led you to decide to use a belt drive? Sure. You know, we had used, uh, we had had our eye on belt drives for a couple of years. They, they um, were really starting to get to a place where we were really comfortable specking them on on bikes that, that we were selling in stores. We had a bike at the time, it was the, called the Soho. It was a three-speed internal hub drive um, belt drive. And we really liked actually the performance 
retailers really liked the simplicity. Um, the the belt drive system was really like had reached a, a level of quality that like consumers were really starting to have a lot more confidence in it as well. And it was really light. That was kind of the cool thing. It was really really light. And so when we started these what if conversations, it's like. What would the, like, the lightest single speed, what would the goofiest thing that you could build? Well, you could take the best Madone frame from that era, and you, if you paired it with a, a belt drive, and then you could do, if you paired it with a couple of uh, you know, other light you know, handlebars and, and, and a lot of other parts, you could actually have one of like the highest end, lightest, maybe single speed urban, urban styled bikes ever made. And then we had somebody on the team who actually just said, well, let me give it a shot and I'll make a prototype and we'll see how it goes. But the biggest thing is like, I, like when we looked at it, you're like, okay, yeah, how are you gonna like, cause the chainstay was gonna be our, our, our biggest thing. It's like, how are you gonna, cause a belt drive needs a split dropout. And at the time the Madone didn't have a split dropout. There was no, like we hadn't have a, a solution for that. So that was the first thing that, that they had to conquer in, in the prototyping phase. So that was gonna be one of my questions. I've heard rumor over the years that it, the bike used quite an unusual way of tensioning the belt. So the majority of single speed bikes or belt driven bikes will use a sort of horizontal dropout or a track end, if you prefer, which moves the wheel fore and aft and that tensions the belt. The District Carbon used a different arrangement where the axle spun concentrically around the sort of middle of the dropout, essentially like an, almost like an eccentric uh, bottom bracket, but replicated at the rear. Now, I've heard rumor over the years that this eccentric um, dropout was based on components used from Trek's ABP suspension system. First off, is that true? And secondly, <laughs> why on earth did you use an eccentric dropout? <laughs> sure. Well, I think, you know, again, I, I will caveat as being the marketing guy, they don't tell me everything. And it's probably, uh, you know, some things that I don't know that are probably the most valuable for me. But, um, you know, we, di we did borrow a couple of learnings from other places. You know, the way that we were able to do uh, belt drives before was because we were working with aluminum frames. So you could actually, um, you could actually separate that, that dropout uh, point. Um, so we did look around for inspiration in, in other places where they had actually successfully created a system like that. Um, you know, ABP was one of the one of the um, places that we took a look at because they they had created a system that that essentially was ex doing exactly sort of what we needed it to do at the time. So there were definitely things and learnings that we borrowed from other parts of, of the business. The great thing about you know the industrial design and the engineering teams at, at Trek is that they, they they work really closely hand in hand. There's a lot of shared learning and knowledge. And so there's a lot of, uh, hey, um, I see what you guys are working on. Have you thought of this or have you tried this? And, and that was probably pivotal to actually making the District Carbon a reality. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sort of sets it apart from other bikes where lightweight single speeds have existed. But I think the sort of quirkiness of it is what really cemented it We'll give it a place in my heart. <laughs> sure. Well, I said, and I saw your article. There's a, there's a few bikes that I get to work on that I really do have this kind of like, I have a really deep affinity for, because you, you work on so many bikes after a while, they just, they, you know, you love all your children, but there's some that you just love a little bit more than others. <laughs> and the District Carbon was, was, was one of those things where it was so different. It was so silly. And we, in, in the volumes were going to be so low. Um, but they still said, yeah, like for a lot, you know, a lot of times, you know, Trek has to, is at a scale where you have to reach a certain, you know, volume to make it all feasible and make, make the business, you know, a business. Um, that was one of the things that they kind of said, you know what, this looks so fun and different and interesting and let's give it a shot. And the volumes were really low, but, uh, the bike was so different. And so, um, you know, we hand numbered them. We had enough, like control over the process where we could actually do a topical decal and we could have take each one off the line and hand number it and, and make sure that you know and kind of treat it with a little bit different care because it was just kind of a different product 
Just off the top of your head then, with that question in mind, can you roughly say how many of them you produced and ideally how many you sold and whether whether you've got one hiding in a warehouse somewhere that I can just have? Yep. I think, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't think we made more than, a, like, I don't think we made that many more than 100. Wow. I think it was a real, like, we really did, I think we really did try to keep that one really, like, low. Um, and I'm trying, because... I have had people reach out to me. I know somebody over in um, the, our education department, our training, our training, our retail training group has number 87. And, he's, and he got it and he's like, I got number 87. It's like, number 87 what? It's like district carbon. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's probably pretty close to the end of like yeah, yeah. when we were making these. So it's, it is one of those bikes. If you do find one, I highly encourage, if you're a collector or you're, if you're into it, I highly encourage getting it. I don't have one and I don't have one laying around. I'd love to have <laughs> one for the archive, but uh, uh, my wife would prefer that I uh, actually don't bring another bike into the house at the moment. So, <laughs> My final question on the bike, did you have an opportunity to ride one yourself when it was developed? And if so, I mean, describe the, describe the feeling. Yes, absolutely. We all rode the prototype because I think we, we try to really put the prototypes through uh, as much uh, punishment as we can just to see if this is actually going to work. I remember the first pedal stroke on the, um, on the prototype and the prototype was able to use, you know, even like cut down carbon bars, things that we wouldn't necessarily like do at, a, at, a, at, a, at an OE level or, or a stocking level. And I remember the bike almost going out from under me because I just put a little bit more force than I thought it like than I really, really needed to because it was so light. I mean, this bike broke every single UCI rule that there, about <laughs> bike weights and everything else, but it didn't matter. You know what I mean? That wasn't really part of the, the design theory. We didn't have to do anything because these bikes weren't going to be raced anyway. Um, so I remember the bike almost going out from under me because it was just way lighter than I had anticipated. And once I got it, okay, once I, I kind of felt it, it, it was just one of those things that was just kind of like too fun not to interact with um, and not not to want to want to share with people. I think... The team at that time was such a, um, it, it, it was such a uh, collection of creative and fun and just goofy people that like the joy of riding that bike was really, I think, what brought us to the point where like, we just got to pitch this upstairs and we just got to, we got to defend it because it's going to, it's going to get all the, all the scrutiny. Um, but at the same time, what it could do for the brand or what it could do just for the, you know, the few people who do get their hands on this thing could be really, really meaningful. Amazing. Yeah, it's a definite highlight for me. Trek has produced a lot of pretty weird and out there bikes over the years. And, you know, there's still highlights in the catalogue, which are definitely like outside the mainstream for what is, a, you know, a very, very large brand. But as a sort of shining example of what you can do, given <laughs> the opportunity to do what you want, I think it's a wonderful bike. Uh, oh my gosh, it's like, uh, thank you so much for bringing it up again. Uh, it's one of those bikes that just kind of like, it's always kind of like under the surface, but when somebody actually talks about it or brings it up, I could, I could spend hours talking about that time. It was great. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Eric. And thanks for building such a cool bike. Absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Thanks very much to Eric. I really enjoyed looking back on that bike. And I'm very pleased we dredged up some of his wonderful memories from that time in his life. Right, boys, before we wrap up, any other business, anything else that's exciting and perhaps a little update from both of you on how your bike of the year testing is progressing. Tom, we'll start with you. Uh, my bike of the year... Uh, testing is progressing okay. I was due to be out today, but the weather is terrible. And myself and Rob decided that we wouldn't really learn much if you're, you know, when you're like rattling around the woods and all you're trying to do is stay on your bike because the roots are wet and it's everything's muddy, uh, and you're not thinking about what the bike's actually doing. You're thinking about not dying. Um, so we didn't go out today, but we'll be hopefully out tomorrow uh, up at Bike Park Wells, who are very gracious in hosting us for a lot of our bike of the year testing. Um, but yeah, going all right. A couple more weeks to go. Um, still haven't got a clue 
as to which bikes are going to be my top three, four, five, six, seven, or eight. Um, it's a it's a complicated year. I am. Um... You know, one of my favorite things is making fun of you for moaning about the weather. But even I have to sympathize that it is it's absolutely <laughs> honking today. It's really grim. I'm sitting here with very wet thighs after my ride in, very foolishly underdressed for my cycling. Simon, are you also shying away from the grim weather today? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've got the aero road bikes category, so it's going to be <laughs> even less appropriate weather uh, for that. It's just... Yeah, I, I, like I've, I've, I've done a... I've, I've tested a few few good bikes already, and so that's that's been good um yeah i was kind of thinking oh save some of the save some of the bikes i'm really looking forward to to you know testing for the first time for for march because the weather will be nicer maybe not but yeah like we'll, we'll see it's coming along well there, there you know there are i think one of the interesting things with testing road bikes is that there's especially within you know a specific category like aero road bikes is there's, there's there's a high level of convergence really i don't think the differences between the bikes are as big as they are well, you know, I expect they are amongst mountain bikes. Um, so the kind of, you know, the differences between them are kind of, you know, more more nitpicky, really. But that's fine because I love to nitpick. Is you literally your job is to be <laughs> a tech pedant? Is your is your, could be your title? Yeah, very good. And uh, just to go back, kind of look back at the news highlights from last week. Anything else that's got you excited, Tom? Um, you put me on the spot there a little bit, Jack. Um, what I am excited about is there's a few new things coming out very soon that I actually that are genuinely excited and really interesting. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna swerve the question and say keep an eye on Bike Radar over the next sort of few weeks because there's some big news coming from a few big manufacturers of bikes and products and it'll be hot gossip when it lands. What a ruddy tease you are, Tom. Simon. Um, yeah, so I thought that the uh, announcement of the Continental GP5000 ASTR and the TT tyres was quite interesting. So the ASTR is an all-season version of the uh, GP5000 STR, which is the kind of you know world tour level all-round road racing tyre. I thought it was weird that they went for a kind of like painted tan sidewall rather than the kind of quite nice kind of natural biscuity tan sidewall. That's on the the GP five thousand STR, but they seem to be making some quite big claims about it. You know, sort of saying that you could use it as a kind of commuter tire, which which seems, you know, it's a quite a premium tire. Like, you know, maybe there are some premium commuters out there, I suppose. Um, the GP five thousand TT TR seemed very interesting as well because the kind of tread pattern on Continental's tires is supposedly fairly aerodynamic, but they've always kind of lagged slightly behind you know say something like the victoria course of speed in terms of pure rolling resistance so it'd be kind of interesting if this can kind of match the rolling resistance of a victoria course of speed and be slightly more aerodynamic then this could be a a really good tire very good well thank you very much to both of you thank you for joining the bike creator news podcast always a pleasure to go back over some of the highlights from the past few weeks if you want to keep up with more saucy gossip, why not sign up to the Bike Radar newsletter? If you scroll down to the very bottom of the homepage, we have a newsletter sign-up widget there, and twice a week you'll get a tasty selection of the best news, reviews, and features to come on bikeradar.com. If you like listening to our angelic tones, then don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you think those angelic tones were worth listening to. And if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, send those through to podcast at bikeradar.com. They're very helpful. We always enjoy them. And they're very good inspiration for future episodes of the podcast. Simon and Tom, thank you very much for joining me. And I'll speak to you again soon. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 